ba do do ba do da do do ba do da 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 ba do da 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 beyond 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 Queer Stories. Welcome to Beyond Queer Stories, the podcast that gives voice to the queer community through the art of storytelling. Welcome everyone to another episode of Beyond Queer Stories. I'm Dawn. And I'm Anna Deshawn, and we welcome you to this episode with our featured guest, Dr. S. Yay. Oh, do I do that? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, welcome. Yay, indeed. So, family, let me read a little bit of Dr. S's bio so y'all can get to know him. I know him already, but this is going to be good. All right. Black, trans, queer, temporarily able-bodied, upwardly mobile, educator, advocate, spouse, friend, and Beyonce fan all describe Dr. S. Simmons. His identities and the associated structures that label and influence them inform how he shows up and educates because who we are influences how and what we know. Dr. S's epistemology is deeply rooted in recognizing the influence of systems of power, privilege, and oppression in our lived experiences. S firmly believes in the value of experience as knowledge and the importance of centering marginalized, aka lost, voices. S is originally from Chicago Heights, Illinois, and is the eldest of three. S has been happily married to wife Danielle, who was awesome, for over 12 years, and they have a dog named Drake, yes, just like the rapper, that joined the family over nine years ago. Dr. S earned their BS and MS in psychology from Iowa State University and PhD in higher education from Loyola University, Chicago. S is the co-founder owner of Simmons Counseling and Consulting Services, where he provides workshops, trainings, and presentations for organizations across the world on issues related to diversity, inclusion, and equity. Over the course of his career, S has also held several positions within higher education, including admissions counselor, pre-collegiate program coordinator for gifted and talented students and students of color, educational program specialist for the Ronald E. McNair Post-Baccalaureate Program, and assistant director and interim director of the Gender and Sexuality Center. Through his experiences working with organizations and on college campuses in the U.S., he has developed an engaging, informative, educational experience for a range of participants. His approach is one of challenge and support. Ask anyone who knows S, and they will tell you S is passionate, S is caring, and S leads with love. S. Wow. wow. That was a lot. <laughs> I know, but I love hearing you read it. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> yes, that gives us lots to talk about. Oh, my goodness, too much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we always kick it off with this question, so I'm going to start us off with this. What identities do you feel most influence your experiences? Yeah, and, and you can hear it in the bio, right? Um, black, queer, mm-hmm. trans, upwardly mobile, spouse, and some things that are influencing me these days, especially with 
COVID-19 and, um, you know, like quarantining and sheltering in places like being a grandchild and being a child and a sibling and an uncle, right? Sort of connecting with family over a distance. And also I would say educator is like a really big identity for me and like a way that I think about what I do in the world, I guess. Yeah, I think like you said, with COVID now, it's making us connect, you know, whether with family, with friends, in ways that maybe we're not used to, or maybe ways that feel disconnected sometimes. I know, like, I've been appreciating all the virtual things that are happening, and some friends have put together virtual things, and family starting to talk about it. So how have you stayed connected during all this? Yeah, so um, some cousins and I have a group text. There were not 10 of us, and then someone was like, why am I not on the group text? So then Aww. I think there's like 11 of us on the text now. And every morning, someone starts off with like a good morning, and then we sort of talk throughout the day, sending videos and inspiration and like thinking about building as a family. So that's been really, really cool. What's funny is like, if you are friends with me, um, and you like really know me, like you talk, you might talk to me today and then you, we don't talk for like months or years or something. And then we reconnect and it's like old times. And so I have a lot of relationships like that. So I've been like, this is maybe like a connection time for us. So I might have mm-hmm. a phone call, you know, for a couple hours. I've been committing to reaching out to different people. So I, I connected to like my brothers and brother-in-law this past week. Cause I was just like, you know, I just want to check in with them and see how they're doing. And so I'm just like, you know, doing very similar things to what I've always done, but being more intentional in this time because I have, I don't even know if it's that I have the time. This is what I want to invest my time in. You talk a lot about family. And so I'd love to talk a little bit more about that just because so many queer identified folks, right, have chosen family, right, have mm-hmm. had to create families of their own. You have a very tight knit family and how did coming out, not only just coming out period, but then coming out as trans identified with your family. What did that look like? How did that feel? How has that evolved over time? Yeah, um, I appreciate that question because I've been thinking a lot about my community at large. Um, I'm working on a few projects that have me being reflective and reflecting on my experience. I've been thinking a lot about my support network and how abundant it is. And, and also that like coming out as queer and trans, like that's not like a one and done, you know, I'm continuing to come out. I think less as queer now. I think queer might be at a place where, well, actually I have to rediscover queer, right? As a trans person. So, um, and we can talk about that later, but in terms of family, like, my family has always had my back. You know, I come from a family of strong black women. Um, I would say like in terms of the proportions, there's more women in my family than men. There are men, but you know, they, they're a minority. And so always been surrounded by strong black women who were like fierce and proud to be black and had a systemic analysis, right? Like they, they provided a space for my first analysis of like race and racism and like, structural oppression, right? Like talking about um, their experiences as like poor folk or, you know, connecting to government assistance or whatever, right? Um, so they've always been really supportive. And I think with my queerness, 
I think it was harder to kind of understand it initially, but my, like I was outed as um like my first sort of disclosure um was not by choice. Someone that a family friend told a family member who told another family member who like called my mom. Y'all know how that goes. Mm. And my mom sort of confronted me about it. And you know that I said, I'm, I, I like girls and I like boys too. You know, I was like, well, at least if I'm bisexual, like <laughs> you might hold some hope about what's possible in the future. Um, and so she's like, okay. And then I went to college. So like that happened like the summer before college. And then I went away to Iowa State. And, you know, like throughout the time we've talked about it more and more. And she's like, we're good on that. Like that's literally a um, quote from her from one of our conversations. Like we're good on that. So that's been great. And I think, you know, other folks, I just show up, you know, like I just show up as who I am. And they're like, that's just my cousin. That's just my, you know, they're still struggling with like the pronouns and like the label. But for me, that doesn't matter nearly as much as like knowing that I'm loved, knowing that they support me, knowing that they're trying to understand. I had an uncle the other day. So I go by different names in different contexts, right? You know, but in my family, my name, my first name is like what folks are using most of the time. And so now, you know, I go by S in some spaces, I go by Psy in some spaces. And so some family members have caught on to Psy and have been using that. And then my uncle, he like, he's like, can I talk to you? And he like pulled me to the side and he's like, so, you know, what name are you, do you want to be called? And I tried to explain, like, he can still call me my first name. Like, that's still who I am. But for me, I would like them to work on pronouns, like he and him. And he's like, yeah, 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 whatever. But what's your name? <laughs> you know, like, I don't think he understood that that was more important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll continue having these conversations. But as you can see, over time, there's been conversations, there's been like check-ins, there's been acknowledgments of like support and affirmation and love. And of course, there's been, you know, mistakes and misgendering and folks not really knowing how to talk about my wife, you know, like struck, like tripping over the word wife, you know, the fact that I would have a wife. So I think yeah, there's been a lot of support and there's been some mistakes and misunderstandings, but at the core of it, I know there's love, I know there's bond. And so we in this, you know, and that means sometimes we got to do hard things or like I have to interrupt something like my aunt the other day was like, girl. And I was like, you talking to me? And she's like, no. That's, That's so great. That's great to hear that your family is like had such support and that even if they ask questions, right? Like I always find it very validating when my family even asks questions to help them understand my identity, the identity of other people who are my chosen family and do some of that work to educate themselves. I think like that means more to me than them even understanding, you know, my relationships and the people I've, the reasons I get, like, they all want to understand the reasons, right? Like, people mm-hmm. want to understand, like, why are you this way? Or why are you attracted to these genders? Um, and I think the asking questions has been some of the most validating, being open to conversation, because it's so easy to just not talk about it. It's yeah, so easy. Sure. So many families, I feel like it's just like, we're just gonna cool you. To- I said, actually, a similar thing when I came out, I'm like, I'm also dating women now. That's how I worded it. I never said any label. I was like, I'm also dating women. 
and then it would be easy to just never bring it up again. But asking mm-hmm. questions is, is super validating. So I'm glad that y'all are having those conversations and they're asking you some questions. About yeah. How it feels good for you. And I realized I didn't really talk about the chosen family part, which is also robust and abundant, right? Like my trans kin who are like, there's a group of educators who we get together and we talk and we text my black women friends, right? Like I am some of my closest relationships are with black women because that's who I was raised by and like who I connect to. And so still having lots of meaningful relationships with black women, trying to like figure out what that looks like now. Right. Um, But them being supportive. So I I feel like, you know, I am fortunate and blessed to, to have both my like bio family or like family of origin and chosen family be so affirming and supportive and like, you know, my family taught me that, like, this is how you show up for people. And so, like, if folks, if, if I can't show up for that, like that for someone, or if they can't show up like that for me, like, then we're probably not going to be friends. And that's cool. You know, I ain't got to be everybody's mm-hmm. friend. Yeah. Showing up is so important. Yeah. I think that a couple of things came to mind when you were speaking about family and questions and identity is that I think that some of the most powerful work we can do are with those that are closest with us. So people only care once they are infected, right? Like laws do not change people's hearts. Mm -hmm. Um, So that piece around your uncle pulling you aside, completely not getting the pronoun piece, like, (laughs) right? (laughs) But even um, inquiring what name, right? It's, that's how people actually change their hearts and minds. It's not because, you know, some get gay marriage bill got passed or because they can teach, you know, LGBTQ history in schools. None of that is going to affect people as much as my cousin or my niece or my nephew or, you know, my brother, family, whatever, being touched with a queer story. I think it's very similar to how anything else works. Cancer works, how MS works. Like if you're affected by it, you go out and run for it. You go out and raise money for it. You go out and like, you know, you advocate for it. You become an ally and you don't even know what that meant. So I think that that's really powerful. Yeah. Can I add to that? Cause I think, yes, like the things that touch us directly and like are closest to us are the things that we sort of rally around and lobby for. And I, I feel like if we can then extend our lens and say like, oh, this is connected to everything else, right? Like, I, again, I feel like COVID is really giving us an opportunity to see the interconnections of every freaking thing. Everything mm-hmm. is connected. So mm-hmm. like my grand, great-grandmother or something having breast cancer and me getting connected to breast cancer awareness is very much connected to a friend who has children with autism and like trying to connect with care for them, right? Like there's a sense of care and support that folks are needing access to resources. And I think if, when you look at all of this, that's the way that it's all connected. And you're right, Anna, like folks, like when you hear somebody share that, you know, you're like, Oh shit, like that's real, right? It's not just something that so-and-so is Mm -hmm. talking about TV or like, you know, like it's real. And I, again, I think COVID is doing that too. Like we're hearing about it and we're seeing it. And then when it hits really close, you're like, oh shit, like this is like happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When it hits your Facebook feed, 
Mm-hmm. Every time I wake up in the morning, there's somebody else I know who is affected by COVID. There's somebody else's family member who's in the hospital right now, knowing people who are first responders, working at Rush, working at some of these other hospitals who feel incredibly helpless right now. It just, it does, it makes it all very real. And so it's, um, it's interesting too. I get texts and like you all said, these virtual wind downs and all these other virtual <laughs> just hilarious to me. I've been in this space for a very long time. My mother <laughs> just, she does something on computers and now everybody <laughs> in the computer doing something on the computer <laughs> is that she just texted me. We were talking, just feeling very sad, right? Like in these moments and both of you all are psychologists, uh, counseling folks around this. And so this could be actually for both of y'all. How do people move right past some of the sadness, past some of the feelings of being stuck during this time and find some type of hope? That's a big question, Anna. <laughs> um, um, I guess, you know, I can start with like ways that I'm doing it because I think what what is real and what's true is that we all have to find our way of doing it and it's going to look different. And I think I had to accept that, right? So like as things have been shifting, there's been information online of like, this is how to work from home, you know, like create a routine, take a shower, get dressed, like do all these things. And so, but I'm like, that's actually not going to, like, that's not what's going to make me feel the freest (laughs) and like make me feel like I am coming into my day the way that I want to. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of things coming at us. And so I've had to like, just limit my screen time, um, acknowledge that like, if that, that's great that that works for you, like keep doing it. This is what works for me. And so in addition to like, just like figuring out what easing into my day looks like. So like getting up when I want to, so no alarm clock anymore. You know, what is the first thing? Do I want to work out? Do I want to read? Do I want to? And and so I'm just like getting into my day the way that I want to. And that's been really actually helpful for my creativity because it's just like I can be, I'm open and like all these ideas are just like coming to me. And so I think that's how I've been coping and still have hope. I have vision boards around my house you know like uh motivate like in my office if you could see behind me like believe in yourself and like all these mantras that you know every room that I go in I can see like okay like be great today or whatever that and and whatever that means like being great sometimes means I'm on the couch and I'm watching tv or I'm napping or right I think what's been really amazing to see is people's creativity during this time and it's it's just like expanding and part of that I think is discipline like some people need like this time to this time I'm working I'm writing I'm creating and all in between but I think folks are just like allowing that creativity to come through and this is what we've always needed I teach a trans class and what I always talk about is imagination like what we need is to imagine a different world I was reading something Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote Emergent Strategy, she talks about that like social justice work is science fiction, right? Because you're a mat, you're trying to think about a world that you've never, you've never like actually lived in in our mm-hmm. lifetime. And so like, I think 
imagination is really important right now and tapping into that and, and just being creative. And that, I think that might feel and sound like, um, what's the word? Kumbaya. I don't know, like, but I think if we tap into our creativity and our purposes and do the things that we were meant to do here and see all the interconnections of everything and come from a place of loving people and censoring people and be like actually being about people, you know, yes, we're going to have some losses. And that is like so sad. I'm so sad for all the families and people that are losing folks. And, you know, like we'll, we'll get through that. Um, we're getting through that and then thinking about like, okay, what does it look like through this on the other side? So that was a long winded answer. Yeah. But I, I'm curious from Dawn too, like, what are you telling folks? Or like, what yeah. are you doing? Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you pointing out that there's so much information coming at people right now about the right way to deal with this and the right way to do this. And I really appreciate you saying like, we have to do what's best for us and like figure out what we need in that moment. Like you said, whether it's taking a nap or watching TV for a bit, because I think a big piece that I've been connecting with my patients with is self-compassion. And we can't be self-compassionate if everybody's telling us you need to wake up and then you need to take a shower and then you need to do your work and then you need to do your workout and do your meal prep. Just like you, like if that's what we're doing, like that's just putting extra stress on us that we don't need. And if that's what feels good for you, great. But if in this moment you're feeling like you need to do something different in your routine than what you normally would to have that self-compassion to not beat yourself up for it, um, I've been really focusing on that and really that they're not alone. So I have multiple patients who their negative coping mechanism is to self-isolate. So, you know, they're like, well, this is my dream, right? Like I can isolate myself. And then all these negative behaviors come in, whether it's substances or, you know, self-harm, things like that. Like that's when that stuff peaks for them. So really giving them space to connect and know they're not being abandoned by providers has been really important. So like making sure that I'm doubling up and giving them two sessions a week if I need to, or I'm connecting them with other providers that might be able to give them a different sense of support that they might need and really amping up their services so that they feel supported and that they're not alone and finding out how they're connecting with others because whatever ways we can find, whether to connect with our chosen family, our biological family is going to be really important to help us get through this too. And just that self-compassion piece, I keep like coming back around to that with them because I think we all could use more of that and it can be hard. It can be challenging, especially for queer people who have been told, you know, that, they shouldn't be the person they are, they've been invalidated, and people are at different points in their queer identity development. And it could be really hard to find space for that self compassion without connecting. So that's something I've really been kind of sitting with and thinking a lot about and talking with patients about. Yeah, y'all both blessed me with that. Because so much of my Virgo-ness is to stay on a routine is Mm -hmm. for things to be as they should be. Um, And there's nothing like it should be right now. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and so finding out how do I create a new normal for myself mm-hmm. in this house we've got has been quite the challenging experience. Also understanding that we're going to be here for a while. And I honestly don't know how even after things are lifted or, you know, governors say you can go back to being quote unquote normal. 
I don't know if I'm going to be ready for that. <laughs> and so also accepting what it means for me to self-quarantine outside of what may be mandated by politicians is, is also something I'm thinking about a lot as we move through this time. Yeah. Yeah, so I feel like this is a really beautiful space to open up to hear your story that you have for us today and let you tell that. And I guess I just want us to talk a little bit about the story and like why I chose the story and get into it. Um, so I listened to Anna's uh, interview and like prior to that, I have been, I knew I wanted to tell a story about my trans identity. And I have a couple of them because what is not included in that bio is all my artistic stuff, right? Like toying with stand up comedy, being a storyteller, like working on other writing projects. Um, and so I was going to tell this other story, but then I heard Anna's story and I was like, this could be cool because it's, it's, um, speaks to like my top surgery and like transitioning. And I think it just builds on what Anna was talking about in terms of identity um, and me identifying as trans and, and going through a similar sort of process, but like having a different identity and experiences. So I just thought we could build on sort of what the momentum was. So um, I performed this story most recently in February for a second story. It's called In My Skin. I look different. I say as I stare into our, our bathroom mirror, a hairy face looking back at me. How so? My wife Danielle wondered. I don't know. I don't recognize myself. Who is this guy? I've been on T four and a half years and it's hitting me that a lot has changed. Like my face. I like it and it's unfamiliar. Let me explain. I've had two puberties. My first started when I got my period at 13. I always hoped I could avoid that whole period and breast thing. I only knew horror stories about them. As soon as mine started, I wanted to know when it would end forever. I knew people who were only happy to get a period when it meant they weren't pregnant. I was at my dad's house when the pain and blood started, and I was a little scared. I hadn't prepared for this moment. So... I called one of the few people I would at a time like this, my cousin. It didn't matter to me that he was male assigned at birth and had never had a period. I just needed some help. He was a year older than me and we'd gone through most of our life together, him jumping rope while I played basketball. Except those two years I lived in Lancaster, Pennsylvania and came back talking white. Hello? I whispered into the phone. Why are you calling me? Because I don't know what to do. Girl, me either. I bled on myself. Okay, does your stepmom have anything? I haven't looked. My stomach hurts. Girl, you better check under the bathroom sink. I shuffled under the sink. I found something. Stay free maxi pads all night XL. It's a damn diaper. This won't be comfortable. <laughs> Good luck. Bye. I stood in the bathroom bewildered. I cleaned my underwear in the sink and then put the pad on. And you can probably guess what happened when I tried to put a pad, without wings, mind you, on wet underwear. It didn't stay in place, and I bled through my clothes. 
So that was how I entered my first puberty, confused and messy. This whole gender thing has been confusing and messy. It's been 1,210 days since my last period, and it's been glorious. Oh, shit, am I pregnant? Even though I don't get a period anymore, my second puberty came with its own challenges. Acne everywhere. A sore throat as my voice dropped, accompanied by some pretty offensive B.O. And horniness. Uh, that's actually fun. Even with its challenges, at least I was more prepared for it. I did extensive research. I actually initiated it when I injected testosterone into my leg for the first time. My second puberty didn't just happen to me. After a while on tea, my period finally stopped. But I still had those breasts. I think I'm ready to have top surgery, I said to my wife as we lay in bed a year after I started tea. I had been exploring it, asking questions, watching YouTube videos, and learning about the procedure. My wife was the first person I talked to about this whole gender thing, first describing it as feeling like a gay man, tangling gender and sexuality in my understanding. She continues to be one of the people I go to when I want to talk through gender stuff. She knew I had been considering top surgery and said okay initially. As we embarked on the journey and it got more real, she admitted she'd miss my breasts. I won't. I was imagining my new chest and wondering how it would look. Even though she'd miss my old, she took care of my new chest by draining blood, putting ointment on it, and even naming my new nipples. Just six weeks after my surgery, we were in the Dominican Republic, and I went shirtless for the first time outside. The surgeon, Dr. Allison Shore, had given me clearance to go bare chest outdoors as long as I put sunscreen on my still healing chest. Up to that point, I had persistent fears about being outside the comfort of my home without a shirt. I was hyper aware of my pink nipples and incision scars. Will people stare? Will they know I'm trans? I was so ready to shed those fears, but the very first time I unveiled my chest outside, I waited until the sun went down. Under the shadow of the moon, I danced to the music of the waves. It was a feeling like none other I'd ever experienced. I reveled as the cool breeze traced my chest and back. It was a mixed emotional experience because it also felt a little awkward. We were influenced by growing up girls and being told it was inappropriate to be topless in public. But we didn't let those gender norms steal our joy for too long. As I danced, Danielle stood and joined me under the moonlight. So we love vacations. And a year and a half later, we had taken more beach trips. I had gotten increasingly comfortable being shirtless outside, whether swimming or taking the trash out. I still had some anxiety about my, about my chest and wanted it to look like cis men's. But I'm not a cis man. I'm my own man. And there's something beautiful about shaping myself and my body the way I want and need. Because before surgery, I did all kinds of things to disguise my breasts. Sports bra tank top, t-shirt, and another shirt. It was a lot. I would look around at guys with their shirts off, no matter how big their chest or belly, and long for the day. And that day was now. I could shed all those layers. By now, I had also completed a few push-up challenges and could flex my pec muscles. Just imagine it. So I felt pretty good about myself. There was some trepidation, 
but it had been fine. If people stared, I didn't notice or didn't care. When we're on vacation, I get to be a relaxed, try new things. I hope this doesn't fuck up my stomach version of myself because travel belly is a real thing. We were enjoying the warm, sunny weather in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, a nice reprieve from the Chicago winter. On this particular day, we decided to lay out on the beach and just relax. I walked out of our room without a shirt on like I'd done so many times before. This seemingly simple act had become an important part of my expression of authenticity and self-love. The walk from our room to the beach was probably a hundred yards. As we walked, we were basking in the sunlight, excited to find our spot on the beach. All of a sudden, someone broke through our bliss with their ignorance. I heard, dude, what's wrong with your chest, man? The seemingly drunk white man blurted out like I was one of his bros. He was in a sea of white men in their 30s or 40s walking towards us. I felt his intrusion through my body like a hair in my food. The moment took me back to high school when I would wear form-fitting clothes and people suddenly discovered I had breasts and gawked. Damn. I was startled by his question. My heart started racing. I wanted to run away. I wanted to put a shirt on. I wanted to scream. I wanted to cry. I felt exposed. In a flash, I had I made a decision not to escalate the situation. Because what I wanted to do was use my recently developing boxing skills, thanks to UFC Gym, to knock him the fuck out. Then our vacation would turn into a rumble in Mexico. I knew my wife would have my back like she always does. Like when people still call me girl and she literally wedges her body between me and the girls hurled at me from people who knew me before. We pretend she's the girl they're referring to. She'd probably try to get between me and this drunk guy. Honestly, though, neither of us was trying to get involved with the criminal legal system anywhere as black, queer, and trans people. Or I wanted to yell, none of your fucking business, asshole. Asshole? That's not even how I talk. Must be the Lancaster coming out. Disrupting his vacation with my words the way he disrupted ours. I even consider trying to educate him about my identity as a trans person. Listen. I'm a trans man and had top surgery to align my body with my identity. There's nothing wrong with my chest. It just looks different than yours. But obviously there's something wrong with you that you would think there was something wrong and shout the question like that, bitch. Now that's me. But fuck that. I'm on vacation and I don't owe him or anyone else an explanation. I get to choose when I share my story. So even though I heard him loud and clear, and could have annihilated him intellectually for sure, and possibly physically, I kept walking with my wife towards the beach. I was already holding Danielle's hand, but squeezed it tighter, letting her know I was uncomfortable. She squeezed back, letting me know she was there with me. We kept it moving and made our way to two lounge chairs on the beach, close enough to the water to hear the waves. I remember the waves. As we lay, I kept replaying the scene in my mind and wondering if I should have handled it different. I had never been confronted like that. I guess she could tell I was still thinking about it. She leaned over. I'm sorry that happened. You okay? Yeah, what the fuck is wrong with him? Why would he yell that? I don't know, baby. 
I love your chest, she said as she leaned closer to kiss it. You know, it's not even about him, but fuck what he represents as a white man who thinks he's entitled to everything, including my body. Regardless of whether he saw me as a trans person or not, it's none of his goddamn business. I know, baby. I love my trans hubby. I could feel the warmth of her love and the calm of the waves replacing the anger and fear in my body. We pulled our chairs closer and I wrapped my arms around her. She laid her head on my chest and we relaxed. I was happy Danielle was there. With her, I feel like anything is possible. I get to live my life as if the world is the way I need it to be and I don't have to explain myself or justify my existence. She validates and affirms me. I'm not ashamed of who I am, and I do want to share my story. Like the other day, when my almost two-year-old nephew was tracing my surgery scars and still mostly pink nipples with his tiny fingers. I don't know what he was thinking. Who knows what two-year-olds think? But I said, I'll tell you about that when you're older. He smiled at me. Scene. <laughs> Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you. Hope that wasn't too long. No, not at all. It's great. Those moments. So the moment at the beach with the white drunk guy, it just reminds me of what it means to, like, how we define safety mm. um, in so many ways. Often because we don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, various reasons, and it's not always this fear of assault, which mm-hmm. I think is um, where most people's minds go when they hear safety or not safe. But it's also just around being able to walk down the street, being able to be left alone, being able to feel like I'm going to be okay. And like a psychological safety, right? A hundred percent, not just always physical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and even in the way of that potentially outing you right like somebody yelling that at you and being outed in public in a very public space like that and that's that's Mm -hmm. also uh a kind of safety safety of like being out of the country Mm -hmm. where you're not in a space that feels like home and someone yelling something out that is potentially outing you to people in the vicinity, not knowing how they might or might not react. Yeah. Yeah. I just remember it being a very surreal moment. Um, And I think that carries that's in in my life, right? Like when I talk about um, knowledge as experience, like in my body now, that is like a memory that is encoded that influences like other things. And so like, you know, in the locker room, when I'm, when I was able to go to the gym <laughs> and I would be in the locker room, like wondering, like, are folks re- responding to, you know, like one of my nipples is still mostly pink. There's some brown around it, but like it's strugg- it's not struggling. It's taking its time. You know, it's just coming the way it want to come. But just like wondering what folks are thinking and what they'll do with those thoughts, right, is is like a constant sort of playing and like getting dressed really fast or like maneuvering in a way to like conceal as much as possible in in all kinds of spaces but like yeah that's always always present except at home right right i was um i was on a listening to a panel 
on Trans Day of Visibility, mm. which just recently passed as of this recording date. Yeah. And Lasaya <laughs> Wade um, of Brave Space Alliance was talking about how if you come up to her in public and you you say stuff like, "Aren't you that transgender activist?" Da 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 da. She will legitimately look at you and say, "I don't know who you're talking about." Mm-hmm. Um, and purely out of safety, mm-hmm. you cannot walk up to me as a black trans woman and out me mm-hmm. on the side of the street in a place of business and think that that's okay, right? And so we think about privilege. Mm-hmm. The behavior directly speaks to people's purpose of mm-hmm. not having to think outside of themselves or put themselves in anyone else's shoes because um, they don't have to. That moment really stands out to me. I also want to say, like, we also think about it as, like, similar to, like, things like sexual assault, where it's going to be, like, this stranger. Like, in this case, it was a stranger. But I think I think about that with like my friends and family too, like especially early on as the bathroom situation, as I was still working that out, you know, I would have to make choices about how are folks going to read me in which bathroom and talk to people who are with me. Like I'm about to go in this bathroom. Mm-hmm. Like I had to tell my dad one time, like I'm, I'm using the men's bathroom now because um, we were camping together and I just didn't want him to have a response and a reaction that then, you know, could potentially put me at risk. Right. Like, you know, things like also calling me girl in public or like do do like there are other ways that like there's just this range of ways to be like outed and psychological mm-hmm. safety. And sometimes some of us choose to distance ourselves from some of those even like close people for for that psychological safety, right? Like if I can't trust that you're not gonna call me the wrong name or pronoun, like I don't know if I wanna be with you in public, you know. For my mm-hmm. own safety. Yeah, for sure. And I love the piece that the pieces where you kind of weaved that support of your wife throughout it and how that's really been a sense of home, it sounds like, for your whole transition process. Can you talk a little bit more about like how she supported you through all of that and how that's been a part of your transition? Yeah. I mean, you know, her and I we we have been counting dates recently. So we have known each other for 15 years. We've been dating almost 14 years and we've been married over 12 years. So she has been here. Thank you. She has been here through it all. And I think we had a natural chemistry like very early on. We just gravitated and became like fast, good friends. And so I think that's been our foundation. So we have been friends first and as friends could talk about anything. Um, in the story I say, you know, first I was, I told her, I'm like, I think I'm a gay man. <laughs> and she's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, cause at the time, like, I'm, I'm also still a little flamboyant and like effeminate or feminine, but also masculine. And so like, I was just like mixing those things up. I'm like, I know it's not what it, what people think it is, but <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know how, how to explain it. And so we just kept talking about that. And, you know, she always left herself open to revisiting, you know, she did her own work um, to like look things up and try to figure things out. And, you know, even with that, right. Like that shifts her identity because I used to be her wife and like, she was proud to introduce her wife and like, 
very early on and again in the transition, like she still would introduce me as her wife and like that would trigger me. And then we'd have to have a conversation like, you know, that I, I didn't like how that felt. And so let's figure out how we, what we need to do differently. And again, she was always open um, to exploring that while also exploring her own identity. She's always identified as like bi or like, you know, queer. But I think that like not being able to say wife and like even not even being able to connect to a lesbian identity anymore, there was some challenges. And so we supported each other, right? I supported her around that. And she supported me by saying, I love you. I see you. I will be here. I will drain blood. I will like ask questions. I will interrupt people's misgendering, right? Like literally, like she will literally put her body, you know, between me and whomever like, Oh, you talking to me. Right. Um, so it's both like, it's like this to the point of physical, like I knew she would have my back with that guy. Like there's a physical support, but also a psychological support, like an understanding of the impact that some of this stuff has on me and like, you know, for her, like thinking about what can I do that's, you know, it's not going to hit her in the same way. So like, what can she do to mitigate or mediate some of that? So she's just been amazing. I mean, she's a psychologist too. So like, you know, she'd be therapizing me, even though I've been asking her this whole time, stop, stop it. <laughs> um, so like, you know, just, yeah, showing up. And I think that that piece is really important for people to hear around Danielle being your partner in all of this, because that is a place that a lot of people don't make it. It is in those moments of figuring out my identity within this relationship that does not work for a lot of people who are partnered with folks who transition. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, those pieces around being called wife or those pieces around who am I now? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who am I now in this relationship? Am I no longer a lesbian? Do I no longer identify as a woman who loves women? Mm-hmm. Which is an identity that right you have come out as. You mm-hmm. probably about it, right? You thought about it. You struggled with it. You didn't called on whatever <laughs> uh, God about it, right? And now, <laughs> for for you, you're trying to find yourself again. And so there's these moments that a lot of relationships do not last through those times to reimagine yourself when you thought you had found yourself already and that you realize, well, maybe I don't need any of that, which goes back to identities. Like maybe I don't need that. Mm-hmm. Maybe in this place, in this relationship, this is exactly what I need. And this is good for me. And I think that's where words like queer really have been a reclaiming that word for the community has been really powerful because it can transcend all of the other language that we had before. Yeah. And I, you know, I teach, like I said earlier, trans class. And I think what I try to get folks to understand about trans. So like trans, like we are all always evolving and like coming into ourselves and like figuring it out. And like, what do we like? What don't we like? Taste change, um, expression changes, right? Like we all actually are always Mm -hmm. doing that. Um, and I think what trans people, what we demonstrate is that, demonstrate about that is like, there's a wide range of things that you can change about yourself and evolve around. Mm -hmm. And I wish that, I, I think that sometimes those relationships that don't work is because there's a misperception about, 
a collective evolution, right? Like it's like you changing on me, you know, which, you know, I'm not ready to change this thing about me or I don't understand what changing this thing about me is. And so I think that kind of halts it a little bit, but we're always like, I am not the same person that married Danielle 12 years ago, right? Not just because of my transition, even if I had not never injected testosterone, had never gotten top surgery, like I still would be a different person today. And we, we've chosen to grow together and like understand that. Yeah. I think that's that important piece for relationship longevity, right? Like all of us are constantly evolving and changing and developing and really supporting each other through that and finding ways to get through those points where it is more challenging, where maybe it's hard to understand how that person is changing and how they're coming to be more true to who they are and really just supporting each other through that and, and giving each other space to evolve. Mm-hmm. So essential. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're soulmates, right? Cause like we're connected deep is, is like this whole physical thing. This is just like a, a vehicle for mm-hmm. our souls to meet and be together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, whatever the vehicle is like, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, to all the listeners out there, everybody <laughs> wants that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's so true. I love thinking about it in that way because our bodies really are a vehicle, right? And whatever changes within our bodies and whatever we need to align ourselves with who we are and our, our bodies together, that all is just like surface, right? Like that's not who we are internally. So I love that. I think that's beautiful. You just you just gave me as you were talking this imagery. And so I was thinking about like sculpting your own vehicle, right? Like sculpting mm-hmm. the, the thing that's carrying your soul. And like right. it, it it seems easier to just create two prototypes and have like send that out to the souls and now the souls get mm-hmm. to do what they need to do. And mm-hmm. Some of the other souls are like, no, you can't change your thing like that because it came this way. And it's, it's like, it's mine, though. <laughs> why right. I can't do, why I can't do with mine what I want to do with mine? Like, you could do whatever you want to do with your other. This is mine. Right, right. Yeah. I was, that reminds me, I was talking with a friend the other day about people's responses to queer people, like God not creating queer people. And, like, it goes against what God created. I'm like, but... He literally create. I shouldn't say he, so God, they, whoever we want that being to be, literally created all the queer people and trans people and all those people. So I don't understand that logic. Like, that's not logical thinking to me because it's literally not true. But people use that to explain it. And I, it, I don't get that. I don't get that logical type of thinking or illogical uh, thinking. It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I... <sighs> We'll go down a dark road. Don. I know. <laughs> I know. It's funny because I was thinking earlier, I was like, I wasn't raised in the church, right? And so only recently have I like connected two different churches and tried to ex- like explore that path. So I don't have that history of feeling like God damns me or like I'm not worthy or something. And, and so that feel, that's like a particular experience, I think. Right. And I'm so grateful that that wasn't my sort of like growing up. But yeah, we'll we'll go down. We'll go deep, dark. (laughs) We take if we ride that train. (laughs) 
the never ending train. <laughs> and I and I think that Christians mm, are I think Christians have a hard time challenging their own ideals. So I think people who grow up in religious households and and have identities that fall outside of what Christian teachings are, what that their particular Christian teaching was, have to challenge their idea of self very early on. So you begin to ask why, you begin to ask these questions that other privileged folks don't have to ask, right? And so when you begin to really break it down, you think you begin to think about certain things and teachings, you're just like, but if I was born in China, you know what I'm saying? What would I really be believing today? How much of this would be true? Um, mm-hmm. If I was born somewhere else, and then are you going to tell me that then the God that you say is so loving is then damning everybody to hell? I mean, there's just this like, mm-hmm. it's like, <laughs> like, come on, let's really think about what, if we're talking Christian, like what Jesus was really saying. Let's like, like mm-hmm. get past what all the people who we say were inspired by said. But let's just talk about what things that like, we think Jesus actually said. And then let's just talk about the world. And then if we want to go there, let's talk about science too. Because let me tell you, these two things do not jive. So (laughs) um, (laughs) I think that finding your spiritual self and finding that place where you can tap into something greater than yourself at the Mm -hmm. very, very least, because I I do believe that. I think that allows you to feel or have some kind of grounding, especially in a time like right now. Especially in a time of like COVID, a time where there's a lot of death right now, where there's a lot of heartache, where there's a lot of pain that people are experiencing. I believe that if nothing else, feeling like that you are part of something larger, that there is a, a, a spiritual piece here that is at work. I think it really does help, at least for me, it helps to ground me into my reality. Yeah, I I love what you're saying, Anna, about like, like, what is the real message, right? Like, what, what should, mm-hmm. what should we really be following in terms of like, if you're thinking about Jesus, or you're thinking about Buddha, or you're thinking about Allah, like whatever your guidance is. And I was watching something recently, a friend sent me this YouTube video, um, Somboku, Somboku, let me, I don't want to butcher the name. Let me just look it up real quick. But anyway, she was talking about, you know, in her village in Africa, like everybody being connected. And if someone goes and sits by themselves, um, that means like someone like you send somebody over to check on them. And if they don't say anything, you need more people. But what that signals is that there's something wrong in the community. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if there are if there's like one person who's being impacted by something that's telling us something about the community right so in religious communities if we are being hateful and like right like there's something in the community that we need to address um and i think sometimes we go to the individuals i'm an individual worker i like i love the one-on-one and i think that that work is like so important and there's other work with a collective because like we gotta think we're all connected. And isn't that so opposite of how the United <laughs> States is functioning right now? Right? Completely. So for one to be the problem, quote unquote, <laughs> or for one to fall, it's that's okay. It's not that one person's problem, right? It's um 
there's nothing wrong with us. There was something wrong with that individual. There was a there was a pre-existing mm-hmm. condition. There was lack of money. There was lack of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm-hmm. There was lack of education. There was this lack. There's like all of these lacks, right, that we put on mm-hmm. these individuals, which who actually are parts of larger communities, mm-hmm. but the country and the way in which capitalism works in this country, in the way that we live in, live in it does not a lot for space like um your story or like that um group in africa functions it doesn't mm-hmm. allow for that space and i think that so much of our um future is dependent on us being able to as you put it imagine what it would be like if poverty didn't equate to twenty fifteen twenty thousand dollars a year like if that if poverty did not equate to um, the lowest income person not being able to take care of themselves and their families, like there's so much work to be done there, but it is extremely difficult when the 10% of us, the 1% of us have no interest in understanding or knowing. Yeah. And it's fun. It's funny because like I was about to say and no need for knowing, but that's not true. The same things that we do in like black and brown communities, queer communities, indigenous communities around like mutual aid and connecting to one another and like um, sharing resources, gathering resources and like this disseminating them out to folks um, who need like that's a mutual aid thing. And that's the same thing that the 1% do like within their family Mm -hmm. or within their communities. Like that's what they, like somebody needs a loan to start a business. Here you go. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but I think that's the difference where it's like only within that family or only within that knit. Whereas in other spaces, it's like, there's a, there's an extended fam, like there's an extension of family and community that we're reaching out to. And I, I just hope that, we can we can get to a place where we're like like all everybody is an extension of my family and mm-hmm. we we got to do stuff to look out for each other. Yes, yeah. yeah. Like, it makes me think like like you said it'd be nice for everyone to see each other within the U.S. as that extension of family because we hear that right like we hear oh as Americans we need to do this we need to do that but there's such a lack of collective responsibility for the way systems are kept in place and the way people are kept within their communities that are struggling. And the U.S. is really good at deflecting any responsibility to that and any assistance and help and all. And like COVID is a very good example of that, right? Like when we look at how other countries are helping their people and how the U.S. is responding to it and they're sending out checks and people are so excited and we're everyone's going to get what like $1200 and great but other countries are responding in such bigger ways and actually trying to support their people and make sure their economy doesn't crumble and we're supposed to be very appreciative of these little crumbs that people are given when in reality like that's that's not going to do anything for most people and it's not going to help the small businesses and it's not going to help the economy 
in the way that we're going to need it to actually get through this and come out on the other side and have people be employed again and be able to pay their bills and pay for food. Yeah, I think what you all are saying really speaks to what we're seeing happening right now, too. And being able to make those comparisons where the U.S. is also really good at like comparing ourselves to other countries in ways that we think we excel, but then being very blind to all the ways that we're actually really behind everyone else. And it does speak to, um, as in Dr. S's bio epistemology mm-hmm. of the leadership, right? Yeah. A great example is in that stimulus package for small businesses. There aren't grants being made available. They are loans. Mm-hmm. There is just this idea that you're just going to continue to be in debt. This very mm-hmm. cycle that is driven by banks, mm-hmm. right? That is not going to help somebody. Mm-hmm. Not long term. Not at all. I'm already in debt. I probably took a loan to start right. in the first place, right? This was not a gift from my father or I didn't inherit right. trust. I probably already have loans. And now I'm going to have to take out another loan? Mm-hmm. I mean, what I what I find hope in today are the things that I'm seeing happen on GoFundMe, the things that I'm seeing happen where people are giving to folks um, mm-hmm. as folks are being creative. Um, online and doing these virtual, I, I, I attended a virtual, virtual drag show last night, right? Where these, cause drag performers, like people depend on these events right. that we go to, to generate income that they need to eat. Mm-hmm. I might have a job that allows me to pay my rent, but maybe that's all that job does. Mm-hmm. My other hustles, I don't do them just for fun. I do them because it allows me to eat. It allows me to maybe buy some clothes that I need maybe support my family in a special way. And when these things are gone, nothing moves. The economy will fail. And the 1% can't have that. (laughs) But they don't understand how to stop their own demise, which will also cause a huge demise on everybody else. But it absolutely goes into the way that they, into the way that they Mm think. Yeah, and I love what what you're saying about some of the things that you're seeing folks do. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's that mutual aid. It's that, um, mm-hmm. you know, pod mapping. Uh, there's a book called Care Work about disability justice. Right. So like creating pods. I'm seeing that in my family. What I'm most. I don't even know. Um, it's not surprising, but it's just like reminding me of the ways that like black folks and poor folks and the queer folk have always had to do this. Like we were talking to my mom and I'm like, oh, I need a haircut. And she's like, I just cut my own hair, right? Like the ways that folks have already learned how to like stretch things and like live with abundance of love and family, but maybe not abundance of like money and material things, right? Um, and so I think I've been really encouraged by just hearing folks be like, you know, I'm already trying to eliminate my waste or, you know, I've already learned how to get through that or... You know, I, I'm going to be okay. We're going to be okay, you know? We're going to be okay. People out here doing their own nails. <laughs> These women out here like, I ain't going to no nail shop ever again. I done figured it out. <laughs> I done figured it out. <laughs> I mean, people are really having to think like, how am I going to maintain? I'm sitting here looking at this hat. It has to stay family on the podcast. Y'all can't see it, but... These locks is having a tough time. This undercut. <laughs> I got like a whole afro happening right now. This is serious. And I'm <laughs> in a place where I'm ready to call Amazon for no clippers. 
I just ordered scissors on Amazon yesterday, not even lying. I'm like, I need to do something. Like, I don't know how long this is going to last. <laughs> I, don't, okay. I can't guarantee how it's going to turn out, but I knew ordered scissors yesterday. We'll see how that but goes. But I think this is helping us figure out what are the things that we can, like, do ourselves, exactly. grow ourselves, build ourselves, and what are things that, like, it makes sense to sort of outsource and, like, connect to folks. Um, and I love the, the artistry and the, the creativity that's again happening right now. It is yeah. pretty dope. And other countries have invested in their artists' communities. Mm-hmm. Of course, the one we live in has not. We love to enjoy it, but when it's time to really support or value it, we don't do a very good job. But I think not from a higher country level, but I think people right. showing their support and love for the artists that they're connected to. And that's been a really beautiful, I think. If I say anything to our listeners, it's that $5 makes a huge difference. And mm-hmm. you have no idea um, how far $5 can go for somebody mm-hmm. else, especially if they got $5 from 10 other people. Mm-hmm. Right. So knowing that I think sometimes people feel like they don't have anything to give. But let me tell you, there's like so many different ways we can give to each other. And if I take it back yeah. to church, right, there's always like the time, the talent and the treasure. And I honestly like. If you've got time to support somebody in an effort for them to go live somewhere or to to, mm-hmm. to sustain themselves, if you've got treasure, that's great. But if you've got talent that you can support someone in whatever they need to do, I'm telling you, it can really go a long way to help sustain some folks who, this is a very hard time. Business owners in High Park who opened like six months ago, a year ago, mm-hmm. having a hard time. A lot of people are closing their doors. Mm-hmm. which only leaves them in debt. It doesn't do anybody any good. Um, and so these are, it's a very tough time. So I think the words you're using S are really great. It helps me to find language for what's happening, which is really cool. That puts us right at about rap time. I, it feels kind of natural to kind of go <laughs> into now, what should people connect with? Right. So like, whether that's during this time, what should people check out? How should they support our local artists? How should they support you and connect with you if you want them to connect? What do you got for them? Oh, so I, I'm calling myself an artist. I'm an educator artist. So I have a YouTube channel that I'm trying to like get up. Um, right now it has the story that I shared here, but just like in the second story platform and then a couple stand-up routines. So nice. folks can check that out. The What's Simmons count. Mm, yeah, I should know. I don't, I don't know how to see. <laughs> yeah, tell us how. How do they find you? <laughs> <laughs> just find I'm somewhere on YouTube. You go right. Find. You just you know <laughs> look up. I've had two puberties. Look that up, and then there I'll come go. up and I'll find see, you and I'll link see, it. I'll I'm link still trying. I'm still learning that, Anna. You were talking about um like promo- self promotion or like always evolving with the times and the last podcast, and I'm just like ah. You know, I, I have a Twitter, but I ain't going to give you that because I don't say much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm trying to build up the social media presence, but Simmons Counseling and Consulting. And if there are any QTPOC web designers out there that want to help help us make that website better, like, you know, hit us up at Simmons Counseling and Consulting at gmail.com. Again, long name, Simmons Counseling and Consulting at gmail.com. Working with the Chicago Therapy Collective right now. So um, they have started developing a part of their services as 
supporting local businesses around trans inclusion and trans equity. And so there's a program, it's called Hire Trans Now. And so um, it's like helping folks to develop their recruitment and application processes in a way that can solicit more um, applicants who are trans. And then the get trained is, okay, you can't just bring folks in and not have, you know, some training around what that means and any policies that need to be changed. So we're working on that and we're working with starting in Addison. So we did something with the Chamber of Commerce in in, um, Andersonville, sorry. And we're sort of branching out across the city. Yeah, and then I'm working with the, on a couple other creative projects. I'm working on a book project right now. And I toy with, like, do you tell people? Because it's like, real Gs move in silence. And I'm like, well, I'm not a real G, so I need to speak it, right? In order to manifest, like, to realize it, I need to speak it and, and you know, claim it. And so I'm working on a book project. The so target add author to that list, yes? Should add author. Yeah, I know. Okay. It's, it's all kind of stuff. So th- those are things that I'm working on. And so like Chicago Therapy Collective, Brave Space Alliance, which Anna has already mentioned, um, are some good places to um, just sort of connect to locally. Yeah. The YouTube channel is Dr. S. Nice, what? you're on it. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> Straight to the point. <laughs> You know, I just, I'm I'm really, y'all, trying to figure out this whole, you know, like social media presence and promotion and like keeping folks connected to what you're working on. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm very private or like, you know, like I don't really talk about all the things that I'm doing, but I need to. Um, So, so Bonfu Somay, so Bonfu Somay was the name that I was looking for earlier who... I was talking about the community and like if there's something wrong with an individual that reflects something about the community. So both those so many. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you for sharing yourself with us today and your story and really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. And so good to see you both. Enjoy. Yeah. All right. Have a good day. Peace. Bye. Connect with Beyond Queer Stories on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories and on Twitter at Beyond Queer Pod. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, click the link on our Facebook or Instagram page or email us at beyondqueerstories at gmail.com. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please rate us and subscribe to help boost the podcast. Our podcast music is created by Beast Deadwell. Check out her music, tour dates, and other queer art at beastdeadwell.com. That's B-E-S-T-E-A-D-W-E-L-L dot com. Beyond Queer Stories is produced and edited by Dawn Brown and recorded in the Cards Against Humanity podcast studio in Chicago, Illinois. Check out their products at cardsagainsthumanity.com. Talk to you all next week. Next time on Beyond Queer Stories. After the show, my boss said, hey, she's really good. I'm like, yeah, duh. It's Jennifer Knapp. And then he said, we should sign her and you should manage her. Now, I had never managed anyone, let alone my childhood hero, but I pledged to do my best. And I managed Jennifer for six years. <laughs>